Welcome to Come and Reason with Christian psychiatrist and author Dr. Tim Jennings. Together we will reason through complex issues to find evidence-based answers that harmonize scripture, science, and our life experiences. I'm your Come and Reason host, Charles Mills. Hello everyone, welcome to another broadcast highlighting the Power of Love seminar that Dr. Jennings presented in Texas just a few short years ago. This program is sponsored by Come and Reason Ministries. Today he examines the meaning behind the many feasts that God introduced as part of the sanctuary service for the children of Israel as recorded in the Old Testament. What was their purpose? What did they mean? And how do they relate to us today? I know you'll be blessed with a fuller understanding of those ancient ceremonies. Here's Dr. Jennings. There isn't any element in the Old Testament sanctuary service, not one element, that is meant to be taken literally. It's all symbolic of something larger. Hebrews 9, 9 and 10, and 10, 3 and 4, states that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Notice the writer of Hebrews is trying to take us out of symbol and ritual to reality. It's not about doing something in a ritualistic way. It's about changing the internal workings of the mind of human beings, healing hearts, cleansing consciences. They're only a matter of food and drink of various ceremonial washings, external, outside the person, regulations applying to the time of the new order. But those sacrifices are annual reminders of sins, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Impossible. Understand, much of Christianity doesn't understand this Bible truth. Much of Christianity thinks in Old Testament times sin was taken care of by the blood of animals. There was no taking care of sin by the blood of animals. This was ritual. This was symbolic. This was theater. This was acting out a larger reality. Everybody saved throughout human history is saved through Jesus Christ, whether they know that or not. Jesus Christ is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Everyone is saved through the works of Jesus Christ, even if they don't realize fully that's what's happened. Understanding the theatrical nature, God, not only did He give them the prophetic writings and the writings of Moses, He gave them an illustration. He gave them an acted-out theater to act out the plan of salvation. And there's multiple layers on this. We're going to focus instead today on the annual feasts. And the annual feasts were theater to act out in a recurring cycle every year the plan of salvation. Man's fall into sin, God's action to bring us back to our Edenic home where we fellowship with God in an earth made new. That's what's acted out in the seven feasts. The first feast of the annual cycle was Passover. And as soon as humanity fell into sin, God passed over their sin. Romans 3.25 says, He left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Christ is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Right there, we find that the inception of sin, God passes over and doesn't in any way allow punishment to come upon Adam and Eve for their sin. In other words, eternal death, because Jesus steps in its place and He passes over that because He's going to provide a plan to restore them instead. 
The time covered by the Passover is from Adam's sin until Jesus' crucifixion, his victory at the cross. The entire time in human history is covered in that feast at that time. The unleavened bread, immediately after the fall, not only does God pass over in grace, he immediately begins dispensing truth unmixed with error to nurture and to bring us back to a knowledge of God. It was internalized, these truths that God is revealing through this entire time in Old Testament history, these truths about God that He's revealing is being internalized by people in sin. Thus, and maybe you've had the experience of taking in truths that are painful truths. Thus, it is represented by bitter herbs. This also represents the time of Adam from his fall to a Christ victory at the cross. Eating of the unleavened bread symbolizes the internalization of Jesus, the Word made flesh. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Internalizing Christ, the unleavened bread. The feast of first fruits, the first fruits are the representative of the victory over death. The sin condition has been cured. We are no longer on the, the pathway to eternal non-existence or death. And this is symbolized by because of God's Passover, because of the lamb that is slain, because of the internalization of the unleavened bread, we can be cured and we will actually live again the victory of the first fruits. The wave sheaf represents Jesus, the ultimate first fruit, who was buried and rose again into sinless perfection. Those who arose with him on resurrection morning are the actual first fruits, the ones he took to heaven with him 2,000 years ago. And sometimes maybe they're represented in some of the revelatory visions in heaven where we see 24 elders sitting on thrones, etc. in heaven, maybe part of that first fruits that rose when Christ rose and went to heaven with him. The next is the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. This is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to apply and spread the victory of Christ, bringing forth a harvest of healed souls. This occurred after Christ's death on the cross as the benefits of his achievements were being dispensed into trusting human hearts. Symbolically spans the time of Pentecost, 33 to AD, all the way to the loud cry. The next is the Feast of Trumpets, a special message for the end time, prepare people to be unified or brought back into one with God. And this is to awaken people, to get them ready, to take an inventory, to prepare their hearts. God is coming again. Let's reunite with Him and be at one with Him. This is the late 18th and early 19th century. This is, uh, corresponds to the Great Awakening in Christianity. The Day of Atonement. This is reunification or at oneness with God, where we are brought from alienation back into oneness with God. The healing and restoration of Christ-like character within, settling into the truth so that you cannot be moved out of it or shaken out of it. This is from the mid-19th century up into the second coming of Christ. And then the final feast teaching this landscape of the controversy from man's fall into sin into our restoration into our Edenic new home on earth, the earth made new, is the Feast of Tabernacles. And after we have been restored to at one after our hearts, our minds, our characters have been cleansed and, and we are like Him, 
For when he comes, we shall see him face to face, for we shall be like him. That is the atonement process, the finishing of that work, cleansing the spirit temple, because when he comes, we tabernacle with him again in an earth made new. And this is why in the Feast of Tabernacles, they would make their little booze out of green briars or green branches, and they would have this symbolic representation of an earth or Eden home made new. Let's talk about the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. And this is the time that we would find ourselves in if we understand this, this historic timeline being taught in the theater. We would be in the time before our Eden home, which is the time of atonement or the time in which we are being brought back into unity or the time in which the tabernacle is being cleansed or the time in which we're being prepared to see Jesus face to face to live in our Eden home. This is that time. This was first started to be preached by a Baptist preacher named William Miller. He identified Daniel 8, 14, 2300 years or days and the sanctuary will be cleansed. And William Miller researched this out and, and I'm not going to go through all the, the processes about how he came to his conclusions, but he concluded that this prophecy of 2300 years until the cleansing of the sanctuary would end in 1844. And he began to preach that this prophecy would end in 1844 with the second coming of Christ and the earth was the sanctuary and the earth was going to be cleansed by the second coming of Christ. And this caused part of the great awakening and the gospel really spread and people turned the hearts of the Lord across all denominational groups who were involved in a real commitment to Christ. But October 22, 1844, Christ did not return and it's known as the Great Disappointment, and there was a great disillusionment, and many people felt, well, this was misinterpreted, this was not a godly movement, and most Christian denominations fell away from this idea and stopped teaching anything about the cleansing of the sanctuary. From that group of interdenominational believers, Baptists, Methodists, another group, there was a group that stayed on the message and said, you know, okay, the Lord didn't come in 1844, but we felt the power of the Holy Spirit, the transformed lives, the love of God being moved forward in real ways. And we can't believe that God wasn't leading us here. We must have misunderstood something. And so for the next 19 years or so, they studied together and eventually formed the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which is the only church that continues to teach anything related to William Miller's prophecy of the cleansing of the sanctuary. After the great disappointment, they discovered uh, these people that were studying together, eventually forming the Adventist church. They discovered that the service at the sanctuary in the Old Testament was a copy or shadow of that which is in heaven. They realized, hey, wait a second, William Miller's position was that the sanctuary was the earth and the earth was going to be cleansed at the second coming, but we can't find that the earth is ever referred to as the sanctuary in heaven. So then it must be the sanctuary in heaven, not the earth being cleansed. So a common SDA view of the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement, which is often taught today of the cleansing of the sanctuary, is that 2300 years ended in 1844. Sanctuary is not the earth, but a building in heaven. Christ entered the most holy place of this building in heaven in 1844. And at that time, he began to cleanse the sanctuary from the sins of the people. This required him to open record books and to investigate the record books and remove from the record books the uh, various repented of sins of the people who had committed them. All cases of the professed followers are reviewed and sins are either eliminated out of the record books or retained in the record books depending on whether they have asked for the blood of Jesus to be applied to them. 
God's judgment is vindicated through this process to show that he does things right and only really removes sins of those who have asked for God to, to save them and to have repented from their sins. This period of time ends with human probation, or it ends human probation, and it culminates in the second coming of Christ. This is a common way within the Adventist church this idea is often taught. But notice the entire way this is taught is taught as a legal process. In other words, what law lens are they looking through? It's being taught through the idea that God's law functions like human law. And therefore, there is an investigation of actual physical records or books. There is legal accounting of historical deeds. There's judicial findings by a, a judicial magistrate. There's rendering of legal judgments against people or, or their accounts. There's removing from databases or record books the historical facts of history that would correspond to their sinful deeds. The legal view is all predicated on the single idea that God's law functions no differently than human law. Remember the designer law, God is creator. His laws are the laws upon which reality are built. The laws of health, the laws of physics, the law of thermodynamics, and the moral laws. Deviations or transgressing these laws are injurious or damaging to the people who do that. So what is the reality that's actually happening that the metaphor of the cleansing sanctuary is trying to teach us? What is that reality? Well, unfortunately, our time is up for today, but don't worry. We will pick right up where we left off on our next broadcast. Be sure to tune in. Until then, I invite you to stop by comeandreason.com for the many resources that Dr. Jennings and his team have made available to us as we continue our journey of discovery and understanding on these issues as they relate to God's character and what the Bible is telling us. That's comeandreason.com. This program was sponsored by Come and Reason Ministries. Until next time, this is Charles Mills along with Dr. Tim Jennings wishing you God's presence in your life. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for spending time with us today. To continue the journey, I urge you to visit comeandreason.com. Here you'll find many excellent resources to help you gain a deeper understanding of the God we all love and serve. That's at comeandreason.com. This is Charles Mills, along with Dr. Tim Jennings, inviting you to join us the next time we come and reason together. <music>